It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word Weekend edition, or at least that's what we're calling it for now. I'm Adam Collins. I'm in Southampton. Not quite in Southampton, actually. I'm in East Sussex, about 45 minutes from the Aegeus Bowl, where I was yesterday in the biosecure <laughs> environment for the first of England's one days. And, Jeff, you're sitting in your apartment, having nearly knocked off the penultimate chapter of your of your book, which is probably more exciting than what I'm doing at the moment, given how much work you've been putting in over the last six months. It's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, I've got one will be... One chapter will be finished tomorrow and then there's just the last one to go, which means it'll be in... So it was supposed to be in today. It means it'll be in like three days late, which is actually early when you consider what publishers think you're going to do because I found out that the editor for my book was told that he wouldn't be getting a manuscript until the 10th of August. So they, they'd built in a buffer of, of <laughs> 11 days for me to actually deliver it based on when I said I would. I'm going to deliver it three days into that buffer. So yeah, this, I'm, is, I'm like this is really interesting it. psychology. So if I were your publisher, I'd be asking yeah. you to file the book a month before I needed to send it off. I think the fact you're going to get there you know, a few days after the notional deadline. I mean, sometimes yep. you don't file 800 word pieces within three days of the deadline i mean this is a a mighty achievement well but the previous book was three days early so i've got a really good track record with books i've got a bad track record with being on time for every other thing um (laughs) 
but but I've got a really good track record with books. So we've all got our little our little uh, odd peculiarities, and I've noticed yours as well because you're you're very punctual with everything all the time. You know, you like you you like to be places twenty minutes early just in case sort of thing. I try. The only the only difference is being on time online to record the podcast. Yeah, that's You've true. You've never, ever been on time. You're always like, I'll oh, record at 8 o'clock and then at 8.20 you start sending messages about how you'll be there in 15 minutes. But I think then- that's partly geared, but I think, I think what I build in there is it's, it's my having spent so much time with you that I never anticipate you being ready by 8 o'clock. So I just factor that in, which I shouldn't, of course. That's, that's a... <laughs> But it's we're playing off each other's quirks in how that plays out. But you're right. The I mean, only difference being that on the on the internet, I'm already here. <laughs> like I'm always on the internet, so I can't be late to the internet because I'm there. <laughs> you know, I'm only late to places when I have to leave the internet to be at a physical. Place. You're a man who lives on the line. So weekend show. We'll come to mm. what we're going to call it in a sec, but we'll call it weekend show for now. Uh, Earth Boy. Now this was a conversation that we had, Jeff, after Australia played India in the Sydney One Day International in January. 2019, so about six months before the Cricket World Cup, we went out to his studio and office in Marrickville uh, and spent a lovely afternoon with the man behind the theme music of The Final Word, of course, Uh, and it was one of our best chats. I know I've said this about a lot of our interviews, but this was a like quite a special afternoon I think in many ways because you know we kind of have corresponded a lot and of course we have the music on the show but to talk about Tim's story in cricket and his how cricket relates to his life and then uh, that and that's just as a, from a playing perspective growing up but then how it's informed his art as well not least the tribute he wrote when Philip Hughes died a year after Philip Hughes died actually uh, so I, I was really glad that we were able to dust this one off because it's um yeah one that I I, I remember so fondly Earthboy's a really interesting character. He's a, what do you get called when you've been around in music for a long time? You're a stalwart or a veteran or whatever <laughs> of, of the pretty much a pioneer of Australian hip hop. Um, started up the label Elephant Tracks in the late 90s and has been putting out amazing music ever since then. Um, and, and Elephant Tracks is really, they're quite special in that they, they really strongly back that idea of multicultural Australia and of getting lots of different voices, a wide variety and diversity of voices out there and they've specifically done that with uh, the way they've gone to find musical talent and give them the backing of the label and get them out there. So all of that section of things is really interesting to talk about but also that uh, you know you don't necessarily associate hip-hop and cricket very much maybe more in Australia than elsewhere <laughs> but uh, that, that he's such a a person who's so deeply immersed in cricket as part of his life as well so yeah it's it's a a conversation that has a lot of different facets to it and uh, i hope you'll enjoy hearing it if you haven't heard it the, before. the other thing about this interview it was the first one we recorded on tape as well videotape as well and, and we put out a couple of clips at the time and it, listening back to a little bit of it before it's a reminder of how uh how good it is when you're face to face with someone in the room i mean i love the way that we're able mm. to use zoom to talk to each other and obviously talk to a number of guests on the show week to week but uh yeah, it's a bit different when you're in, in the same space as someone else as far as the sort of things you might feel comfortable to ask and the, the tangents you might go down, which might be a bit harder through the interface of a computer screen. So, yeah, hopefully it won't be too long before we can start recording these interviews. The last time we did an interview face-to-face, Jeff, of course, was with um, Dr. Peter Bruckner, which was the, the week when um, COVID-19, well, when shit hit the fan, really, and, and the last week when I think yeah. you were allowed into people's houses for um, before the, the government said that wasn't allowed anymore during the, the crackdown, um, but you went and saw Peter yep. uh, and got that interview uh, done for the show, but... 
yeah, it's kind of amazing to think that it's been the better part of six months since we've done one of those. Yeah, and since we've had the possibility of, of doing one of those. So it, it would be nice to get back there, but um, we're not, we're not uh, looking like that's going to be happening in a hurry, at least where I am. Nor where I am. We just had our uh, lockdown easing delayed. So from a purely cricket perspective, that means that the, there'll be no crowds at the Bob Willis Trophy at Edgbaston and the Oval next week. Originally, that was going to be a test case. With, mm. I think they were going to let 2,000 people into Edgbaston and something similar at the Oval, but they've scuppered that because of uh, an increase in cases through July, which is pretty dispiriting. And of course, what we've seen in, in, in Melbourne in the last couple of weeks is even worse again, really. So... Anyway, let's not dwell too much on that. Let's try and avoid thinking too much about COVID-19. Good news from as far as what we've been doing on the show, and of course our weekend edition is all about giving ourselves a chance for a gallop on our nerd pledge numbers, is that um, we've had another surge of activity on the Patreon page in the last two weeks, Jeff, and we're nearing our next target. We are. Hanif Mohammed, 499. That's that's where we were aiming for, and we're, we're about a boundary away. So if you've been thinking about getting on the, the Patreon you could be part of the Hanif Muhammad moment, uh, of course, the, the highest first-class score in history before BC Lara decided to, to get it in his sights um, and, and gunned for it. And I like the fact that he had the idea, even before he'd started that innings, he thought, one day I want to get the 500, I want to get Hanif Muhammad's score. He knew about it and he wanted Yeah, I'm it. not sure if you've seen on social media, Jeff, but there's a, there's a documentary being made about the 501. It's coming out soon. I've seen it. Oh, you've seen a doc already? I've I've seen I saw I saw a, an early cut of it because I wrote about it for um for for the Wisdom Almanac earlier this ah. year. So I don't think it's had its full proper release yet, and all of that got delayed by COVID and so on in the UK. But yeah, I'm one of the few people who who've actually managed to to watch it. It's a really good watch. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's there's a lot of archival footage. It's mostly built out of that, and there's some fascinating stuff of Lara from that mid '90s period when he's at Warwickshire and like. <laughs> <laughs> they're sort of trying to glam him up in this way like you might have done with Michael Jordan or something. He's getting around in these suits with big shoulder pads and like, um, and he gets presented with a yellow Peugeot at one point. He's like <laughs> lounging on the bonnet of this Peugeot getting his photo taken. It, it's it's hilarious. But um, yeah, there, there's a lot in there that's worth watching. Yeah, well, I, I think from a from a final word perspective, we should we should do something to mark 499 and 501. I don't know whether it's the, if we can work out who the 499th subscriber and the 501st subscribers and whether we find a way to get them on the show when we're talking about the documentary i'm not sure that's not a fully fully formed thought yet but um (laughs) i I do think it's significant given we've been building quite nicely towards this through the lockdown and we sort of said this at the start of lockdown and we didn't really think it would come true so yeah that's that's uh that's my way of saying that we're enormously grateful for what has been wonderful support we've received through this period and we're going to enjoy spending some time talking about your numbers today yeah, we'll, we'll try to think of something fun to do. Um, I'll I'll try to think of that when I've got the book away and I've, I've actually got yeah. any space in my brain. Well, maybe I'll, just in the first instance, maybe I'll put up a sneaky advanced chapter or something in, in the Patreon. That's a good um, idea so that people can see what I've been Actually, working on. Actually, that's a good idea. We should put some stuff up on Patreon that we haven't released yet. So there's an interview that you did with me, actually, which was a bit weird. So Daniel Norcross and I interviewed, um, <laughs> interviewed Jeff for the episode of Calling the Shots about the Disruptors. And yeah. obviously, you know, in a, in a documentary-style final product, Jeff's probably in, I don't know, he's six or seven minutes out of the hour because we had a number of guests. But I think you talked to us for the better part of two hours about 
all the backstory of Raw Radio, White Line Wireless, and then our, our stories through, I suppose, professional broadcasting. And we, mm. we should give, uh, we should, that, that should get a wider airing. So what we'll do is we'll put that on the Patreon page as well when we hit 501. All right, you've got ideas. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear them. We're, we've been looking for ideas from people about what to call the weekend history channel type show as well. A few of them coming through. Seb Taylor's suggesting that I should try to license from you the ability to call it the greatest cricket that was. <laughs> well, yeah, well, by way of background for those that aren't necessarily attuned to my other podcast project um which is called the greatest season that was presents that would work but um put it this way we're going to have other greatest season that was seasons about cricket very soon and when we do i'll, I'll tell you all about it on the final words we might have to steer clear of that but i do like the way you're thinking Seb. Uh, ian ballantyne is suggesting the long runs for timeless and leisurely history and tim gilkerson is suggesting the weekend wicketing wonderlust which is a, a little bit too World Wide Web, I think. There are only so many Ws. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this before, but I've, I'm always entranced by the stupidity of saying we need to abbreviate the sentence World Wide Web by making it WWW so that three syllables becomes nine <laughs> syllables by way of abbreviation. Uh, Jeff, um, thank the you stuff that. that goes through your mind. We've got uh, Tamara Palmer, who we'll be talking about a bit later in the show with her amazing nerd pledge. She says backing up works on a number of Mancadian levels, she thinks, which I mm-hmm. can see that, and I think that's quite savvy. And Tim Vanderpump, who, of course, we had on the segment a couple of weeks ago, who has the Clem... Party liaison. The Clem Hill Story channel. <laughs> so, I mean, there's some, pretty good, there's some pretty good options there. We might leave it open for another week, Jeff, so we can fully consider... We, we, won't, we won't be hasty in, in... Clem Hill's the try to throw a selector out a window one, isn't he? He is, Clem indeed. He, um, yeah, good. The, the man, the man who has the, the sculpture at the front of Adelaide Oval made of granite and who I think I'm right in saying had the most scores in test history consecutively between 95 and 100 something like that but um the burly left-hander did once mm. throw a selector out the window so that's a good shout from tim vanderpump i don't think he successfully died i think he punched the selector and then tried <laughs> to throw him out the window by the way it was all but, around so, the, it was all yeah. around that tour when uh we talked about in our live show uh jeff uh in manchester 19, 19 12 or something. might be a bit earlier than that i think it might have been anyway in any case it was the one where a number of players said actually sod it we're not going um, and it was all geared around um, Trumper and Hill and some disagreements with some influential administrators. I have to go back and brush up on that history, but it definitely happened. So they're the suggestions. Get them uh, into us through the next week as well on Patreon in the usual way. Drop us a note. Um, and Jeff, before we crack on with some new numbers, I should note as well that uh, we're actually looking for a sponsor for this weekend show. We, we've had a couple of our wonderful commercial partners working with us through the year uh, in the weekend slots as well, but um, we're, I think we've reached a point where this show deserves its own, you know, its own sponsor. We're, we're doing it every week. It's an actual thing now. We're giving it a new name. So with that, we're, we're hoping to ramp it up and give it its own, um, yeah, commercial partner as well. Just a reminder that we've had... <laughs> just something about that phrase is hilarious to me. Commercial partner just sounds like you're paying someone to be your boyfriend. You yeah, know? well, <laughs> it, it sounds less crude than sponsor. But I'm, I'm a commercial it, partner. It, well, <laughs> I, I view it as a partnership. I think I'd like to believe that the people we work with also see it as a partnership, incidentally. But, well, I might as well say that the reason why you might want to join Still with fun. us. We, we, we've had over 1.2, I think it is, million downloads in the last year. Uh, we're regularly the number one chartered podcast in Australia and England, if that's where your business exists. We're back to the top of the charts in the USA this week, I see as well, as far as cricket's concerned, and a number of other places in like Norway, Denmark, Philippines, Portugal, Malaysia, Botswana, the Cayman Islands. So if your business is in any of these Being places... Being in the Caymans. Then, 
If your business is in the Cayman Islands, you can, afford, then you can fucking yeah, afford you can to afford sponsor to a show. Back or two. <laughs> anyway, if, if that is your drive, if, if you are interested in doing that, then then do sing out uh, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Uh, and Jeff, uh, with no further ado, let's crack on with some... Nerd Pledge! The game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us generously, lovingly, a, a number of dollars and cents that relate to a cricketing number and we have to work out what the number is. Off the top today, like the cream off the milk bottle, it is an edited number from a long-time friend of the show, electronically speaking, Jamo, who has changed the number to $2.07. What might the string of numerals 207 suggest to you in a cricketing context, Adam Amidro Collins? Well, I, I, two Zs in that uh, middle name as well. I, I, was, mm. uh, I was tipped off by the fact that he had a clue, which read, I don't believe this fine achievement by one of my boyhood heroes has been accorded the respect it deserves, albeit under slightly dodgy circumstances. I am a proud Victorian. Well, for that, we have actually talked about this incident before. It was the Keith Stackpole 207. He must be talking about, so Stacky, uh, the Victorian opening bat, who played for Australia from around about 1966 till about 1974, 75 or thereabouts. Um, Stacky, though, in the first Ashes Test of 1970-71 at Brisbane, was run out by Jeff Boycott on 18. And I, I say that emphatically because the newspaper the next day had a side-on shot of him being run out by Jeff Boycott, but the umpire, Lou <laughs> Rowan, uh, elected to give the benefit of the doubt to the batsman. Uh, so he goes on to go from 18 to 207. It's the defining contribution of the test. Australia draw it. England win the series, but Stackpole ended up making 627 runs in that series. And that jumped out at me as well because I saw Dan Bredig, uh, friend of the show, former guest many times on The Final Word, note on Twitter today that there were 627 COVID cases in Victoria today, which uh, is the amount of runs that Keith Stackpole made in the 1970-71 series. And Bredo is not the only person from the Final Word family who's been on Twitter matching the COVID numbers with with uh, with nerd pledge style cricket scores. I note that Andrew Lowcock, who's a patron of ours, has been doing it every day as well. So it's a bit of gallows humour and a bit of fun in an otatherwise dire situation. But 627, yeah, Stacky in 1970, COVID cases today, and I'm certain the 207 relates to the start of that series in Brisbane. There you are, Stackpole, Stackpole. It's a, it's a very good name. It's, um, it's, that's pretty much the number one hobby of the, the Labor Party, isn't it? Pole stacking. <laughs> well, I think it's more, I think it's more uh, other things that, that have been stacked over the years. And, uh, look, it's, it's dangerous train for me to get on here and talk about Labor Party branch shaking. Let's be perfectly honest. Let's just move straight on. Thank you, Jamo, for 207. Uh, Michael Brown is our next new number with $7.54. Generous, thank you, Michael. What does seven fifty four suggest? He he told me by message it will be a hard one, and he'll be impressed if we don't need a clue. But I, I reckon you're onto it. Well, look, I don't think I am, but the clue really is in the conversation you had with him before. So he gave you grief about not knowing that Gloucestershire was a county, or knowing it was a county, but when you were struggling to name all eighteen, I just couldn't you remember. Couldn't remember it. it, and he and he gave you a bit of a working over about that. So I. Use that as, as my... Anyone who forgets Gloucester deserves it. Don't go around forgetting well, Gloucester. Don't, don't get exactly right. I, I couldn't agree more. Fantastic part of the world. But I used that as my prompt and, and worked out rather quickly that there was a bowler who played for Gloucestershire who took 754 wickets. William Woff, like Val Perevic or 
Ange Christou. Really? Woof. Like, um, and that, that, it's actually spelled. It's spelt William Woof. You better believe it. He was a left. <laughs> was he actually a dog? He, well, he, he, I don't know, but he, but he bowled left arm seam and left arm orthodox in the. Uh, left poor. Uh, left left poor, poor. That's right. Either, you know, uh, ter- around the turn of the century. So he debuted. <laughs> In 1878 and played through till 1902. But he had a really interesting life in cricket. Um, He went to the Bedford School, which is famous because Alistair Cook went there a century later or thereabouts. He was picked to play against WG Grace as a kid. Of course, Grace played the majority of his cricket for Gloucestershire. And he he got him out. And that that had a knock-on effect to Grace offering him a job working at a school in Cheltenham where Grace worked and that led to him getting a job on the Lord's Ground staff. So he went on to work for the MCC, played for the MCC, played for Cambridge University, Oxford University uh, and ended up through all of that also becoming a first-class umpire. And I noted that another man we've talked about on Nerd Pledge recently, Sawanji Madanyaka, the, the great uh, Sri Lankan left-arm ortho who is still playing at age 48 at the moment, man I interviewed for The Guardian a couple of months ago, the oldest in, in first-class cricket at the moment. He is also a first-class umpire in addition to being uh, a prolific uh, spinner. So um, there's a nice little link back there. So look, that's the only thing I've got for 754 that meets the criteria of being obscure and related to Gloucestershire. William... Ange Christou, Val Perovic, or woof. And for our English listeners, you're going to have to Google that to know what I'm talking about. But I, but I promise you, it's worth it. Uh, William Woof. Let me tell you, you could not sneak around his house late at night. <laughs> you would know all about it. Um, I'm, I'm willing to accept that answer. I think that answer is in the absence good. of anything I, I like else. The idea of being, <laughs> but being being an umpire and a spinner at the same time. I like the idea of that. You know, you can bowl the delivery and then just shuffle over behind the stumps and give your decision. <laughs> um, you know, y- your reviewing would be very, very good if it came to that. So uh, so that's where we're going with that one, Michael Brown. Uh, thank you. And our last new number for the day, another generous one. Thank you to Mark Henderson for $9.41. What might 941 suggest the clue from Mark was that it remains one of the greatest and most unimaginable numbers in all <laughs> cricket, which sounds less like a clue than, I don't know, something a cartoon character will say. You know, everything the sunlight touches. What's that dark place? You must never go there. <laughs> well, well, I got on a, I went on a completely uh, incorrect tangent on this, but I think it sort of meets the criteria. So in terms of unimaginable bowling averages, 9.41 is that. I mean, it's like half of what we'd ever really see in any um, in any competition these days. But uh, in the 18, late 1800s, uh, Samuel Costick played Sheffieldshire cricket for Victoria and New South Wales, and he has the best bowling average of all time, which is 9.41. That is the best bowling average for anyone that's taken more than 100 wickets. He finished with 106 scalps and, yeah, did it at 9.41. So I thought I was quite clever there, but I thought before going with it, I should check with Mark because that seems even a bit bit too obscure even for this segment. Uh, And Mark's a regular correspondent of ours, of course, through his young daughter, Anna. Um, He sends us videos of her bowling and she's an absolute gem. Uh, Looking forward to seeing how she goes uh, in the future. I reckon she's a decent chance to end up playing some pretty serious cricket. But he added that um, it was a subject dear to my heart. It's a record that he thinks will never be beaten uh, and, uh, and not least because of a recent development, a very recent development. And the third part of the clue was that the original 
number was from a Wisden obituary, which he had to update from 9.34 to 9.41 after checking with Andrew Sampson. So I thought, well, hang on, I have seen him talking to Andrew Sampson about this and it's very relevant to me and it's very relevant uh, to, to, uh, to, well, to someone we've been talking about a lot in recent months, and that's Bob Willis. Bob Willis bowled 941 no-balls in Test cricket. Uh, the late, great Bob Willis, um, who, of course, the first-class... Tro- what? It's true. How? And, and the thing is, and this is where um, Paul Allen... The reason- like, he got called. He did. He got called 941. for 941 It's 325 no-balls. Test wickets, right? And bowled 941 front-foot no-balls. I'm not sure how many of his wickets were called back because of um, him overstepping, but... That, that's not available to us. But what we can do is cal- recalculate what his bowling average would be if no balls went to the bowler in the era when he played. Because back then, of course, they went to the, the team tally but didn't count against the bowler. Did they not? They didn't. So They didn't go against the until bowler? Like, How do they not go against the bowler? It's the bowler's mistake. Yeah, they were just considered sundries and they just sat in a separate column on, on the uh, on the scorers and they the scorers, weren't uh, sheet. and they did not go against so so if you look at so old score sheets players. if you look at old score sheets how they're added up I'm not sure how much scoring you've done on the old fashioned books but I certainly had one when I was growing up you'd had the bowlers figures and then you would have sundries mm. underneath then you would have totals sundries Simon so but the thing yeah. was if you added that number up in a modern game it wouldn't add up to the total because the sundries were included for no balls and wides inside the bowler's allocation that i don't know what year it changed but certainly not before willis retired in 1984 so willis if you add right. that to his runs against by my calculations anyway his bowling average swells from 25.2 to 28.1 <laughs> very useful when he played That's for as long as he jump. did but still it is a massive jump um so uh, that that's definitely where where Mark was going with that. That's incredible. So basically every modern bowler should be able to um, have a extras excluded number, which is their bowling average when compared to previous era. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I mean, I'm not sure how many bowlers at test level would suffer from having been called from many because, as we've talked about repeatedly, the fact that they're never called anymore. But, I mean, let's take someone like, I don't know, who played a long test grip? Peter Siddle. Let's use SIDS. I wonder what Peter Siddle's adjusted average would be on the Bob Willis metric if you extract... Yeah, with no extras, no wides. All wides or no balls. He wouldn't have bowled many wides in test cricket, but he would have bowled, let's say... Well, someone like Mitchell Stark would have bowled a shitload of wides because he often bowls five wides down the leg side or over the head of the keeper, something like that. That's a good point. So, you know, what's his bowling... And and has bowled quite a lot of no balls as well. And there are are lots of bowlers who've had the no ball problem where they they keep overstepping all the time for, you know, Shannon Gabriel, those sort of ones. So, yeah, I mean, if if you're looking at... Because people look at numbers across the eras and say, oh, well this player wasn't as good because, you know, this one averaged 22 and this one averaged 26. Well, well maybe they Yeah, and, and, and no one will will will, uh, uh, will affect the needle so much as Bob Willis because no one would have bowled 941. But still, and, and, I, and I... How do you bowl that many? How many balls did he bowl in his career? Well, like, he went for, he went many... for 8,200 runs, which becomes 9,000 and a bit. I didn't look at the ball count, but... I mean, hmm. yeah, he played from, what, 1970 he debuted, I think, and retired in 1984, so a 14-year career, played over 100 test matches. So it's not a massive proportion compared to like the, the volume of balls he bowled in total, but, I mean, against any other... Um, when you compare him to his peers or anything like that, it, it, yeah, it's a record which will almost certainly never be broken. Um, so I'm just looking it up now. 17,357 deliveries. So one in every So that's shit. still like every, one in 19. One in every three overs. That's a lot. That's one in every three overs. <laughs> one in every three overs. <laughs> that's a lot of fucking no, but get behind the line, Bob. 
What do you think this is? Some sort of amateur hour garden party? Jesus. It must be something to do with the fact that Can- that, that, that run-up of his, which sort of went in a number of different directions and it was far from fluent. <laughs> that might that might be the reason why before professionalism and before or I say before professionalism before there were bowling coaches and so on and 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 you know very technical uh, assessments made of cricketers when it was far more natural play your natural game as it were and that 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 um, my natural game is overstepping just love overstepping. well you know it, what it, if what it if was it, for both batters and bowlers like four hundred because remember now like it's not just that that changed it, it it used to be the curved run up didn't it and then. Uh, the coaches and the biomechanists and so forth realised that you got more momentum running dead straight. Now everyone runs dead straight, so this is sort of a uh, yeah. This is this, this is part mm. of the old game that, that we don't see today. Partly because right. I mean you, you've seen it, Jeff. When we go and watch international cricket, they measure their run ups to the centimetre. They bring a tape measure out before mm. play and put a, a a strip of paint. Now back then it was just mark yeah. it out by you know stepping out your run when you get just the vibe just the vibe i mean it's it, 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 it's marbo it's it's the vibe it's the constitution it's bob willis just 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 strolling up and going oh overstep maybe what if he bowled like 400 of them just in one game what if he just had a real shocker one day and just and that's where most of them came from yeah like that bloke who bowled in the uh <laughs> daryl tuffy yeah I was, I was trying to, it was daryl tuffy and as, as a fellow who bowled in a in a in a cup There's final. There's the Plunkett Shield Yeah, game. and the guy that played at yeah. Lords, a cup final at Lords, who bowled like a 17-ball over and was never seen again after having got his county through to the final. I don't know what no, it was. No, there was one, there's the most expensive over in history, which I think went for about 76 runs. <laughs> that was a, there was a New, Zealand, um, a New Zealand Plunkett Shield game where they were trying to contrive a result by getting... Um, by sort of giving giving the other team enough runs that they would have a dash in the last mm-hmm. innings, that sort of thing. So donating them some runs and they had the opening batsman come on and bowl no balls where he'd like ran over the front crease by about three metres and then just donkey dropped it down the other end about 25 times in a row and um, and just kept getting smacked for sixes. Ah, so the spirit of, of cricket. you just got to love it because back in the good old days, everyone <laughs> played by the spirit of cricket. Thank you, Mark Henderson, for $9.41. I'm pretty sure we've got to the bottom of that as far as Bob Willis is concerned the Bob Willis trophy begins on August the 1st which is tomorrow the first of those games is being played where Middlesex play their home games in the Bob Willis trophy uh, I'll be commentating that with Isabel Westbury so um, keep your ears open for that competition it's going to be fun if you're wondering where your nerd pledge number is by the way I, I, our next one is Mark Fenton who put it in on April 24 so if you were before April 24, and you think we've missed you, drop us a line. But if you are after that, then you're on the list and we'll come to you. We had a, a big backlog from April, so by the once we get through that, we'll be catching up a bit more quickly. So do not fret. We will come to you as soon as our wings can carry us there. Jeff, now we come to the, the second half of, of the weekend show, which is about revisiting old numbers and, and correspondence and other bits and pieces uh, in our DMs uh, off Patreon, which is a really, uh, really fun way of staying in touch between shows. Where we'll start, though, is something that really kicked off on Twitter last weekend, Jeff. You calculated, thanks to FP Hicks for his $16.50, you calculated that 1650 was the most amount of runs a player could conceivably making a one-day international, excluding madness, so running fives or running sevens. Excluding extras yeah, and, and you know, overthrows. You, you, you can't, yeah. you can't um, run three and get four overthrows like Carl Kennedy and Neighbours. You need to – yeah. need, it needs to be kind of like, or, you know, what you consider to be conventional scoring patterns. Orthodox. Orthodox, that's right. But many people got in touch saying that, Jeff, 
Many. You were wrong. It's, it's a quote. I, well, I, I, Mark I, I, I forgot you one thing. Well, if you put, you know, if you had uh, five sixes and a three in every over, then I was correct. Um, you'd get 1,650 runs. But they did point out that you would probably try to hit a six from the last ball of the match rather than a three in order to not keep the strike, in which case you could make 1,653. I would argue uh, in return that that's just a bit greedy. You've already got 1,647. <laughs> Call your jets, buddy. Like, who do you think you are? You know, Ooh, I'm Garfield Sobers. I'm going to hit six sixes in and over. Like, come off it. Uh, we, not everyone came here to watch you. There are other players. There are 11 on the other team. Pull your head in. I think you've got to give due credit, though, Jeff, to those who pulled you up on Twitter. I live to have been chastened by victorious egret, uh, the, the winning child of an eagle. Yes, Signets are from Swans, Egrets are from <laughs> Eagles, and also Sukrit Munjal and Terry Hogan and probably many others uh, who are out there. Tamara Palmer, we enjoyed going through this number. Well, you, Jeff, you enjoyed uh, researching her 214 last week. Remember that the clue was it was to do with her family, the Wisden Almanac and the Caribbean. And Jeff, you can explain how you got to 214 and the wonderful response we got from Tamara during the week. Yeah, well, initially it just said subsequent additions to the family, which I assumed to mean the family of the player, but eventually figured out it was probably the family of the pledger uh, and worked out that Tamara's first child is named Lawrence after, I guessed, Lawrence Rowe, the West Indies batsman of the 70s. Correct, uh, her husband Michael had a, a big fandom for Lawrence Rowe and so uh, suggested that when... The first child was born and she decided to go with it. Tamara wrote in to say when she was expecting their second child, she actually emailed Wisden to ask for some other great West Indies name suggestions, of which there are many, uh, I've got to say. Like there are lots of, you know, lots of, lots of Carltons and Carlosses and a lot of great names wandering around. Nixon McLean, uh, not many people named after Tricky Dick, but there was one. So the names are floating around. Uh, so she said the editor did come back with some good suggestions and also suggested Sydney being the name of Brian Lara's daughter. But given that they lived in Sydney, they thought that might be um, <laughs> a little bit too close to home. <laughs> uh, so, but, but had had they had a boy, she would have been Joel, the second child, but she was not. So she, well, she could have been Jolene. I don't see why not. Jolene. Yeah. Jolene, Jolene, Jolene. It's the song that I sing every time Moeen comes on to bowl. I'm trying to Moeen, work out who the editor of Moeen. the Wilson Almanac must have been at the time. So it would have been either Matthew Engel or Shield Berry. It could have, I suppose, been Tim Delisle had it been 2003. But assuming that... It would have been, would have been sometime between 2000 and 2005. I yeah, don't know when. Yeah, it could be one of those yeah. three men who were editing. I think Shield might have taken over around, around 06, 07, something like that. So in any case, we, we got to the bottom of the, the Tamara... Uh, Palmer number and wonderful clue and great supporter of the show so good to have her part of our conversation again we had a, a message from Anna Collins which was a, right in my hitting no zone. relation no relation she was fascinated to learn what would happen to all the merchandise that was made for the T20 Men's World Cup now that it has been postponed? So, of course, there would have been a lot of kit made for the women's tournament, which would have had the men's on there as well and so on. I mean, for my part, the, the first thing that, that jumped to mind and I put this in my reply to her was that after Hawthorne beat Sydney in the 2014 Grand Final, I spent about six weeks trying to find out where the Sydney 2014 Premier's T-shirts that would have been sold at the ground had the Swans won and not us that day. <laughs> 
because I had a pathological fucking hatred of the swans at the time. But I, nev- I never was successful in, in locating that, that bunch of T-shirts wherever they were stashed away. Um, so I said I'd try and work it out. But, Jeff, you've added in our notes here that you actually know the answer to this. You know where these T-shirts and these hats and these bags and so on now live. I, I know I know where they're stashed. I know where the bodies are buried. Um, well, I, I, I saw the correspondence come in and so I contacted some folk at the ICC to ask this important question and got an answer, which is, which is that uh, it, it's still a bit up in the air, but if, if the Australian version of the T20 World Cup happens next year, they will continue to use all of the original stuff as per the Tokyo Olympics is going to do. So it's still going to be the 2020 Olympics that just happened to be held in 2021. And it'll be the same thing. So it'll still be the the 2020 World Cup. And it helps that it is the T20 World Cup, so you can just kind of fudge the branding that it's all about 2020. But everything will be the same as it was. It'll just be the 2020 World Cup that happens to not be in that year. The only way that it will change is if the version next year happens in India and the Australian one happens in 2022, then they'll have to rebrand, do everything again because they will have had a tournament in the meantime, so it'll have to be a a fresh start. So they still don't know what's going to happen with that, but um, at the moment they're they're holding on to all their hoodies and their their beer coasters and caps and all the rest of it um, and, and we'll hope to have the efficient route of using them next year. I love the idea that the Tokyo Olympics next year will be called the 2020 Olympics. It reminds me of the famous and brilliant John Clark and Brian Dawes sketch from the Games uh, and the 94 <laughs> metre, 100 metre running track. So like, so we're going to have two new events, the, the 94 metres for men and 94 metres for women and, and so on. And uh, that, that, Well, that, it's called the 100 metres, so the well, clue is in the how name. Far, how far is the track? Well, you know how far the track is, yeah, but we want to hear you say it. Who's the current all-comer? Who's the current, all, all, current all-comers record for the 100 metres? Well, it's Brian and he's not at his playing weight. He's had a few. <laughs> We want to hear you say it. Ninety-four meters. Ninety-four what, what's meters. his name, Mister? Um, I can't remember his name. Mister Phillips or whatever. He is. Yeah, oh, it's a it's a it's a wondrous bit of television, which it, it, it bobs up on YouTube, then it gets taken down, then bobs up on YouTube and taken down. It's one of those I've I've tracked over the journey, but it's up there at the moment. I had a look at it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Anna Collins, I'm glad we were able to answer your question. Schmicko um, got in touch. He he uh, some time ago pledged. Uh, $3.68. I had to go back quite a way to work out what we'd answered. We said at the time, I think it was in about May, that it was how many wickets James Anderson had taken in England. And now, of course, um, he's taken many more than 368, having played in a couple of test matches against the West Indies. But Schmicko wanted to inform us that it was actually a late 90s economy class player and not the Nissan Cedric. And, Jeff, that was enough for you to work it out. Yes, well, it was the economy rate of Adam Dale, the late 90s bowler, who we mentioned a few weeks ago for his first-class wickets tally. But now we've got the runs per over that he conceded in one-day international cricket across 30 matches, which was uh, exactly the number that Schmigo has sent. So I'm pretty confident that's what it is. Very good. My favourite email of the week in a competitive field, or my favourite message on Patreon, I I should say, came from Sam Ashworth. So Sam went deep, went into the weeds where we like people to go. He said he was listening to Nerd Pledge last weekend and uh, we, we returned to that topic of players that had made their cap number or their highest score was their cap number was the, was the was what we put around it and we worked out that Brendan McCullum had 
done that from memory, Jeff. In, in any case, Sam said he was going to do it for England. So he went and pulled up a spreadsheet and not only did he work out the cap numbers against the highest scores, he did an awful lot more than that over what must have taken a really long time, Jeff. I mean, he's got here several different tabs that relate to bang on the runs and then bowling figures and then catches and then stumpings. And I mean, it really is a work of art. I'm going to ask him during the week whether we can share it. But I mean, in terms of the measure, Jeff, that you were most interested in at the start, which was players making their cap number, there's a a great here, 227, Wally Hammond. Yes, Wally Hammond, which I think that we had come across the 227 for Wally Hammond being... uh, equal to his cap number, but it wasn't his highest score because at the moment, at, at that point, we were looking for high scores and he does have the 336 that he made in the same series against New Zealand. Uh, I don't think anybody actually has their highest score, but there are about a dozen players who did make their cap number. Predictably, most of them are relatively early on, sort of below 40, but George Eilert as 11th cap for England, made 11 at one point. Vernon yes. Royal made 18. WG Grace is on there with 24. Frank Penn with 27. Billy Bates with 30. William Scotton with 34. Morris Reid with 36. And Walter Reid, relation I assume, with 40. And then you get up to the uh, the more interesting one. Stanley Jackson, cap number 82, did make an 82 not out against Australia at Trent Bridge. Archie McLaren, who was the famous historical racist who got the Aboriginal bowler Jack Marsh barred from playing for Australia by refusing to play against him in a tour game in 1902, I think it was. 1901-2 maybe that season. Uh, he made 92 and was cap number 92. And then the only one after that is Wally Hammond. So nobody between 92 and 227 uh, ever made their cap number, which I, th- I think was a sad waste of of the opportunity. You know, if your cap number's a nice 150 or something, then surely <laughs> you should be trying to make it. Yeah. And Sam's gone on, as I said before, to, to do bowling figures as well. So there's a couple of uh, figures that are bang on. So uh, Fred Ramsey, four for 25, 425th player, etc. But the one that is more modern and more interesting is Andy Flintoff, who took five for 92 at Lords against Australia in 2009 in his sort of farewell, his last his last massive performance for England, really, when he um, ran through Australia. I was there that day, actually. It was uh, the last day I was in England before flying home on that particular series. But uh, he took a five for 92 and his cap number was 591. He does it as well for, for catches and stumpings. And I mean, it's a, it's a fairly elaborate spreadsheet. So Sam, with your permission, which I'll seek off you uh, in the patron DMs, I'm going to put that on our Twitter because it's, it's, I think it's a, a nerd pledge work of art. It should be in the Louvre. Can I also just point out that George Eilert, cap number 11, who made a score of 11, also had a bowling innings of none for 11. Uh, So he's the only one to feature on both lists in this remarkable compilation. So that none for 11 was in 1890, and the 11 that he made was in 1882, so eight years earlier at the Oval, which, of course, is a very famous test match. Uh, Jeff, that takes us to... Brian Arcane. It's the third time we've had a bite of the cherry here, but it's been solved. $1.32. The clue that we received from Brian a couple of weeks ago was that it involved umpires Joel Wilson and Nigel Long. And we, we said to Abby Sim, who got to the bottom of a cryptic one last week, whether she could have another go. And she has, and she wasn't the only one. Well, she's, uh, she's got a, a suggestion put forward, which is that... 
Nigel Long and Joel Wilson umpired together once in 2017 in Sri Lanka when Joel Wilson had to replace Richard Kettleborough, who got sick. And in that match, Sri Lanka batted for 132 minutes in the fourth innings before bad light forced an end to play. I would love that to be the correct answer because that's so beautifully niche. But it was Andrew Turner who's actually nailed what Brian was trying to get at. It wasn't about Long and Wilson specifically, but he was just wanting us to think about umpires. 132 is the record number of test matches officiated by any umpire. Alim Dar holds that record, and that is the number that Brian was trying to steer us to. That is indeed number wang for Brian Arcane, I'm pretty sure. And last but not least, Jeff, we have another note in from Patrick Rogers, who's been really enjoying uh, getting into the spirit of Nerd Pledge and writing back to us when we've gone on a deep dive. His return served with some more information and uh, that, that exchange has uh, dug out some more stuff from last week that you were, you were going through. Well, particularly about the 1880s opening batsman Dick Barlow, who once carried his bat for five not out in an innings playing for Yorkshire. Um, <laughs> Patrick sent through the, the information which I enjoyed was that Dick Barlow got punched by Fred Spofforth at one point for suggesting that he was deliberately damaging the pitch, uh, which, you know, <laughs> we, we seem to be glorifying. I, th- I think violence is funny if it happened in, say, 1870 to 1900 by guys with big moustaches against other guys with big moustaches. So, you know, if you're, if you're Clem Hill throwing someone out a window or if you're Fred Spofforth landing one on Dick Barlow, it's quite amusing. Uh, also that on Dick Barlow's tombstone, the inscription reads, Bold at last. Very good. Thank you, Patrick Rogers, for your continued uh, correspondence and uh, participation in Nerd Pledge, which comes to an end for another week, Jeff. Uh, a lot of notes there and a a lot of numbers and a lot of information and a lot of fun because as I've said before uh, this only works really if if it's fun otherwise it's ridiculous and makes no sense but because we're all enjoying it and we're all playing along uh, I I hope that we're all learning a thing or two uh, as we work uh, through each weekend as we're not quite in lockdown anymore some of us are some of us aren't but still hopefully this is still hitting the spot. Well, the way I figure it is if you really want to get to the interview, uh, you can skip forward. There's those little numbers that let you jump 30 seconds at a time. You can use the slider as well and just move <laughs> to the, the part where you hear someone else who's not talking about 1880s cricketers. And if you like the bit where we're talking about 1880s cricketers, then you are in the right place. And uh, and if you don't, then just wait till the Monday, Tuesday show and um, we'll, we'll generally be doing a little bit less of that there from now on. If you want to jump on and play along, it's patron.com slash the final word. Let's uh, get up to Hanif Muhammad and... Hopefully you can be part of that. Yes, Hanif Muhammad, Brian Lara, and, and we'll make a big deal of that next week, maybe on the main show, maybe on the weekend show. Uh, great to have so many more people joining in the last two weeks. It's been fantastic. And, yes, keep your suggestions coming in for what we might call this. We'll resolve that uh, between now and next Saturday. And as I mentioned before, if you do want to get involved in what we're doing here on The Final Word and want to be one of our sponsors uh, this weekend show, it might be a good place for that. Drop us a line at finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Jeff, let's leave it there. Uh, let's have a quick break, and when we return, it'll be the two of us with Earthboy last January. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from the Elephant Tracks recording studio in Marrickville, which you can verify by the low-flying aircraft that will pass over various times through this podcast. We're doing an interview we've wanted to do for quite some time. 
Earthboy is a musician who's been around the Australian consciousness for a good 20 years, founding member of the Oz hip-hop band The Herd, which were very influential from the late 90s on, and is someone we've been wanting to talk to about cricket and other things in life. So in civilian life, Tim Levinson, uh, welcome to the final week. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. There are cricket connections we're going to come to as we go through the podcast, if people are confused about why we're bringing musicians into the show. But just to start off, I thought I'd get you to tell us a little bit about Elephant Tracks just had their 20th anniversary and uh, a whole lot of shows, a big tour across the country with all kinds of things going on and just fill people in a bit on what ET is and, and what 20 years means. Yeah, we are a uh, an independent little label that is based out of inner west of Sydney and, um, you know, we've always, a lot of the people that have been involved in Elephant Tracks have come together from a, a pretty multicultural perspective and that has really been a big influence in the type of artists that we've signed and the type of stories that we've tried to tell, ranging from The Herd to Horror Show through to Hermitude and that real kind of broad cross-section of Australian artists which previously maybe had been gate-kept to be more of a expression of white Australia, I feel like there's a really exciting bunch of artists and we are part of that telling of those stories. So yeah, we've been around for 20 years and you know, we threw a whole bunch of parties last year to, to celebrate that. The thing that made me twig about the fact that you're a cricket nut, so 2007 uh, uh, album called The Signal came out and there was a line in a song where you say, we follow on like Laxman and Dravid. <laughs> and I remember hearing that and going like, like sort of head explode moment because I was a big hip-hop fan, but I was also, that's my favourite test match when VBS Laxman makes 281, Rail Dravid makes 180. After following on, they're playing against Steve Waugh's team in 2001. They make about 600 in the innings, go from a couple of hundred behind to about 350 in front and then bowl Australia out in the last two sessions to win. Extraordinary match. And then it had never occurred to me that anyone in music would like cricket. And suddenly I I was like, wait, wait, that's, that's there. It was a moment of clarity. Uh, that would reflect, or that echoes my experience growing up playing cricket. And cricket of all sports was one of those groups of people that it never crossed over into my interest in music. There was never a bunch of people who were involved in the cricket teams I played in that would also go and go out to gigs and whatnot. And I felt like there was a real big disconnect there. I've grown up and realised that actually, no, a lot of, <laughs> there's so much crossover. There's so many people who are in music that really follow cricket a lot. But yeah, that's definitely my experience. And that test, I don't know if I would say that's my favourite, but I reckon that's one of those games where people can remember where they were. It's one of the, it falls into that exclusive club where, you know, I remember we're at Uni of New South Wales sound checking a gig and just watching them grind the Australians out of the game and also feeling that we were really vulnerable once they did turn the game around. I felt as soon as they had accumulated that many runs, we were done. I didn't think that we would come back from that. It just broke the Australian spirit and I cannot, I will remember that. Forever, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also the context of how that partnership got put together. So Australia thrash India in three days in Mumbai, yeah. make a big score in the first innings at Calcutta. Um, India, of course, follow on famously. And then... Pulled out for about 150 when they, they, they got... If that, they got teetering on the brink of being run through and then they bat for what must have been about eight hours together, didn't they? They started together on day three and finished on day five with that yeah. long day in between. You talk about where were you. If you weren't yeah. in front of your TV for six hours, as <laughs> Australia slowly imploded. Uh, it was a, yeah. a real marker, wasn't it? It was so great, but, it's, it, but for me, it was so miserable because of course you wanted a contest but 
there's that point in tests where you really stop believing there's any chance whatsoever. It's like a lottery of getting a wicket. There mm. just doesn't, you do not have any way of envisaging any scenario where ball can hit bat and fielder can catch ball or it just stops. <laughs> it just, it just, all you start thinking about is when will this game end, you know? And, and it seemed like that actually when they got Laxman out on the fifth morning, I remember Ricky Ponting took a catch in the gully and he just looked completely surprised. It was exactly like you said, it came straight to him. He put his hands up in front of his face and he looked at the ball like, huh. <laughs> Huh, there was no celebration. It was just, what? Yeah. It's in my hand. It, it, it was exactly that kind of feeling. Yep. Did you enjoy earlier on before, perhaps maybe before social media when barriers were broken down somewhat? So Jeff's experience of hearing you talking about cricket and your music. Now we would know you're a cricket fan because you, you follow your Twitter and Facebook and so forth. So in that era when you were writing songs, did you like to drop in the old cricket reference in there? It's almost like a signal to, to people out there that I'm one of you. <laughs> I mean, I think that <laughs> it's you... It's like the secret handshake with the Freemasons. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to work out what the reward is though you know you, you you just leave these little um breadcrumbs around you know a little trail that leads people back to the the fact that maybe you could bond over a, a game which goes for seven hours in the you know the the piping hot summer but in terms of being able to be a person to people who follow your music where you know before you're a recording artist all that all that they know of you is what comes through on the songs and maybe the odd interview in a magazine but suddenly in the social age around that 2007 mark that's when it flips and suddenly everyone's mm. on facebook and, and twitter starts blowing up and so on you can be an actual human being with your audience is that better or worse yeah the proliferation of social media definitely has led to the escalation of civilization in general you know <laughs> We're all so much better for the way we engage online. You know, it's been a really fascinating thing just to see how you are able to transition from a life where you're dealing with face-to-face or phones to now having a second life online. And it's had really profound effect on a lot of the people that I am surrounded by, musicians and whatnot, where you are forced to actually have a participation in that side of the world. And it becomes very connected to your professional goals. So, yeah, I suppose it can be the undoing of a lot of people. And um, a lot of the time, I mean, you do have the choice. I mean, fundamentally, what we're talking about is a choice. And so musicians will always have that choice. But there's an obligation there that follows through. There's an element of coercion almost that if you don't do this, you can't reach an audience. You can't prove that you can reach an audience. Yeah, for sure. And just thinking about when you're putting a post up and you're trying to come up with a caption. Yeah. Well, these things are really small parts of our lives, but there'll be people that compile that data of how much time we spend on trying to come up with something that is going to be appropriately funny or capture our friend's imagination. (laughs) And then when it comes to musicians, this is sort of like a part of our business. And if you think about musicians as small business owners, these things just become the importance that you place in them just becomes magnified. And of course, then you you overthink these things, but that's, that's part of modern life. That's exactly our lives. Jeff and I often describe what we do as running a small business together and yeah social media becomes an imperative and how you can relay your message and appear coherent and, and funny and witty and all the rest of it I mean, soul traders according to the uh, the ato yeah <laughs> the well, that's right soul traders so it does yeah yeah it's right we're not one official business just but, for, but it if can, the aco are listening it can make yeah. that difference you know it can it, it, because if you put something out you know there's a couple of things probably for both of us that we've written at times that have been turning points in career terms Mm, and it's just because something happens to hit the right note on the right day on a social media platform and go big instead of going small and and a million people read it instead of 5,000 people reading it and suddenly people know you for that. 
Yeah, and it must be the same in terms of music that you put out, Tim, as far as you must be only be natural. You're, you're prouder of some pieces than you are of others, but it doesn't necessarily relate to the traction that they might get in the marketplace. Yeah, it does happen, and I think it probably happens more on the, I thought this was going to go okay, <laughs> and it's a miserable failure. Um, then it's the other way around where you are surprised by, by the way that something has organically been received. But yeah, mm. you, you do come across that all the time, and I think a lot of it is understanding Understanding the way that people engage with information online now that there are reasons why certain things do go viral and they kind of slip into the general currency like everything becomes a little bit more connected and I suppose that's why you see political commentators chiming in on sport matters and musicians like myself and our armchair expertise just being expressed at every given chance there is a confusion about how to find your own identity in amongst all that so yeah I suppose we're all just experimenting as it all plays out in front of us too. One thing that I notice with people that work in sport, especially people who work in sport in isolation, is that they'll cop the old stick to sport critique when they talk about politics. Do you get that kind of pushback too? Because you're obviously quite a political beast in your own right. Uh, Do you find that people say, well, what would you know about the political discourse? You're just a musician. Or talking about sport. Or for that matter. What would you know about Adam Goods? Precisely. Is that that part of your experience online? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think it comes back to having the choice to either engage with it or not uh, as opposed to I don't have to live with some of those judgments they're just like people deciding whether they want you to be able to engage in a, a public conversation I mean it's a funny thing I think it often it's probably one of the more surprising parts of modern life is the enthusiasm people have for fascism <laughs> you know that we're very proudly part of a democracy but actually what would be better is if you just never commented on anything that would be a better <laughs> form of democracy for that person who doesn't agree with your opinion it's part of modern life that is a flashpoint for both left and right politics you know the way i see the world is that when things get too far down a path of where historically speaking it's been a seems fairly clear we have precedents of like say nazis are bad and generally shouldn't be entertained. Generally as agreed a, on that for a while. It was a, there was a consensus mostly around. It was a 20 year window. But yeah. <laughs> you would think there's not really a debate to be had but here yeah. we are, you know, arguing the merits of people's perspective. Oh, that wasn't a Nazi salute, that was a Monty Python tribute, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Tell us your relationship with cricket. How did that start? How did you come to love the game as you do? I played the game from when I was about six or seven years old and started off on Saturday mornings and pretty much spent most of my childhood being a pretty average cricketer. I never was, you know, we had rep teams or whatnot, but that was, a lot of that was in the Blue Mountains and the Blue Mountains was really well known for not having a single turf wicket. <laughs> so, you just um, got to play on the three sisters, you know. <laughs> and all our rep areas were out in the country, so it was all right. Burke, Dubbo, Bathurst, Orange, and they were all turf wickets. They also a pretty good drive. But uh, I loved cricket and I went through that period of time around that 12, 13 year mark where you do start joining the seniors teams and you start batting at number 10 or 9 and gradually work your way up. And that relationship, I guess, with older, particularly men, because we didn't have, I think there was that same disconnect where you'd have girls playing cricket up until that sort of 12 mark and then it had changed and it had just Mm. become the men's domain. And it was treated like that was completely natural. That was the most normal thing in the world, I think. And during that 13, 14, 15 mark where a lot of other people were going and starting to party, like I I persevered. I think that's part of my personality. I persevere. I just kind of hang in there. 
And so I started really enjoying cricket because I started getting more opportunities and I never really developed professionally in any kind of way. But I definitely found myself now doing three nights a week playing cricket and playing mm. twice a weekend. And those, you suddenly realise that five nights a week you're completely focused on cricket. And yeah. my, um, I had this period of time actually in the 90s, like it was sort of early 90s where my old man wasn't around. He didn't really play sports. But my godmother actually was managing the Australian women's cricket team. Okay. So I would go down to Sydney and spend time with her and her partner. And they would take me out to North Sydney Oval and watch women's games and I'd go in the scoreboard and have a look around. And she would also take me to Swans games at a period of nothing... um, Before it was cool. There's nothing noteworthy (laughs) about the early 90s with the Sydney Swans history. Busting them in. It was was a pretty bad time. But but yeah, she really fostered it too and she was really into cricket and she gave me another way of seeing cricket. So she would take me into the dressing rooms and I'd be a bit wide-eyed and there were a few really pivotal ones moments in those early 90s when I was a young teenager where I my perspective changed a little bit one was getting beaten 6-0 6-0 when I was on holidays playing a 65 year old friend of my mum's in tennis me thinking oh you know I'm a I'm a sports kid, you know, I should be able to handle this. And she just demolished me. And also watching these women cricketers up close and just seeing how good they were, Mm. obviously not professional, but still seeing that, you know, that transition from young girls stopping playing cricket to uh, a few years later, seeing that actually there's this other story going on. I think it was just the experience feeling like, this is an Australian team and we still have a stigma attached to Australian women's sport when actually this is the, the exact same thing. It's still an Australian... And that thing was very fascinating to me. Just to go back to one of the first things you said about when you were a kid first playing seniors, I think in my own life as that being one of the most important turning points. Yeah. Even now, a guy at my club played his 400th game yesterday, Turbo, he's probably listening. Turbo's bonkers, but I remember watching him give the match report for the second 11 on a Saturday night back at my club, and he was like a hero of mine, and I'm not yeah. exaggerating that, and getting to play with him in the third 11 and the fourth 11, I would have been 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. These were huge moments in my childhood, which I carry around with me as a, a badge of honour even now. Yeah. Like it, It's that way that you can, it's like you first led into the grown-up club you're like to be a man for the first time at a very minor level but running in and bowling at adults and uh, sitting in the dressing room before and after play and so forth like for me is that something you can identify with as well yeah I, i think a lot of young cricketers will go through rites of passage where everything is about where your next goal that you're trying to get you know next century higher average all those kinds of things but when you look back sometimes you appreciate that uh some of the fondest memories you'll have playing cricket and being a cricket lover will will actually be moments that weren't accompanied by fanfare and trophies and all Mm. that kind of thing I still remember one of the first times I went from being a junior cricketer playing in the seniors team and I still remember the ground it was in Blackheath and we were playing a team and I think we were about 20 runs short of the victory we were nine wickets down and I come in at 10 and another person my age came in at 11 and that's how we found our spot in that side and we just kind of blocked and hit singles around and we won the game brilliant and it's a really tiny insignificant moment but it's also a huge moment in you feel like you've really accomplished something which is a bit of a big deal when you're 12 or 13 yeah, years yeah. old and there's still a smile on your face when you mention it that, <laughs> that shows that you still have a really good like your brain's just done a little serotonin dump just yeah, remembering yeah, kind of like wow what, you know this is amazing and I still uh, you know I came down to Sydney and I played grade cricket not at a high level But prior to that, when I was about 17 or 18, we had been playing seniors for a fair few years and myself and a friend of mine got together with a bunch of other junior cricketers and created a team out of, there was a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old and 
we were about 17, 18. Um, the majority of us were under 18 years old and we had probably three or four, uh, you know, mid-30s, you know, adults. And that season was, you know, it wasn't supposed to be anything. We were too young. There were a lot of kids in the in the group. And really, we're playing seniors in the Blue Mountains. We're not talking... <laughs> we're talking park cricket. Mm. But um, we went through that whole season undefeated and there was this camaraderie and this sense of achievement that brought together all these really young kids playing in an adult league that that's by far my most cherished year of cricket mm. and that's just part cricket that does not rely on playing against someone who's played shield and someone who's got this rep you know reputation for this that and the other that is just the season that i will always look back to as the most enjoyable season we lost the grand final it was the only game we lost so you won every game and lost the grand yeah, final. yeah yeah but um but God. the actual, the, the, the sense of Taking bonding. Taking me back to under 14s, I had exactly the same thing happen to me. I still think about it two or three times a year. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we think about these things that are just, a, they're, no, they're, they're probably some like little inscribed list in an RSL club somewhere, you know, but it's something that you'll always remember. It's tattooed on your soul. Yeah. <laughs> Forever. If you think about the cricket field and the types of people that will spend six or seven hours on a Saturday afternoon, there's always players that kind of hang in your memory. I still remember at Petersham, I used to play grade, and there was a, a scorer called Dickie. And, you know, he had these mannerisms where he'd be like, piss off flies, and he'd always be shooing flies away. And it became this <laughs> thing that I later met my friend here who was in the herd, and he had played somewhere in that club at some point. And we bonded because we both knew this scorer. And this scorer was, <laughs> was you know, in no shape to play cricket, but he was a fixture of the club yeah. and he was a real character. <laughs> it's interesting. You talk about the camaraderie of that season and how that's, it's such a beautiful thing. There's also this contrast, I guess, with all organised sport, that there's some really ugly sides of masculine macho culture that come through in sport. We've seen it with the rape trial around cricketers in England mm. for instance there are some really poisonous sides to the way those cultures work when you get these almost all male environments and these incredibly testosterone heavy environments and the way that people need to prove themselves and you know some of that seemed to be reflected in the Australian men's team as well through the, the sandpaper debacle and, and all of that for me it's a real contradiction I don't know how to reconcile those two things that I there are sports that I love and there's also this side to them that I think is really destructive. For sure. The cricket that I grew up with was very white and like I said, going out into the country areas to play, it'd be a real, in a minor way, clash of cultures but at the same time, it's very reflective of my upbringing in the Blue Mountains which was also very white. But yeah, white males, you'd go through all those periods of time where young people are trying to assert their identity mm. and their, their masculinity and I recall one time playing cricket and myself there was two other players from the Blue Mountains who were selected into this Western Districts representative team and we toured New Zealand playing this Otago kind of 11 and we went away on this trip and my friend my my closest friend was Samoan he's the closest that we ever really got to a different skin color on the field and over the course of that trip there was a, a level of camaraderie where there was kind of a an acceptance of the type of behavior that you have when you're on tour and a lot of it was an under 21 or under 19s group as that trip went on there was racist jokes being made and it was so blatant that it took my friend protesting some of the behavior for anyone to even acknowledge it and that wasn't dealt with 
at the time because it wasn't even thought of as a point of controversy. It was almost like a sign of bringing the group into disrepute to even complain about that racism. And my friend's not, he doesn't shy away. So he got into an altercation with the captain at one point and captain's a big unit, like a big country unit, you know. He's, and my friend was a fair bit smaller, but he, was, he wasn't kind of backing down. And at the end of that trip, rather than anyone genuinely trying to deal with the circumstances that my friend found himself in actually he was put on report for bringing the you know disharmony into the group and we can't there was this big sort of breakdown as we got home to address the fact that we had disrupted the group and and you make us feel bad for the things that we've done i mean i was i grew up in public enemy i was like i was really committed to an anti-racist bond but at the same time i'm still a white kid i didn't see all these things they didn't impact me directly so i was only dealing with this next to my friend um, so, yeah, I mean, those types of behaviour has always been really common in all the cricket that I've played. There's no doubt that manifestation of it at the, the elite level, it's no surprise to me because I've been in dressing rooms and on fields and that kind of hostility that comes out when people get frustrated on the field and the type of sledging, all that stuff, That's this is of no surprise. Oh, and it's still obviously part of it too now. I mean, we can be happy with the progress that we've made as a, a as a community as a cricket community and they're worthwhile mentioning but even just again reflecting on my own cricket a couple of years ago where I was playing there was an episode where an Indian fellow came to our club and he left within half a season due to the fact that he felt so unwelcome and I don't yeah. think the two things run related I know some of the criticism he copped was very stereotypical and it wasn't on and it's just such an unfortunate part but sort of to go satellite cricket is a white sport I mean fundamentally it's a colonial sport it's a sport that is British Empire yeah. oriented and so forth and yet it is a lovely thing that it's inclusive to the extent that we've grown the sport and growing it amongst now women and, and people from other parts of the world that aren't necessarily from the white Australia origins of... But that's very recent as well. Yeah. I wrote about this in the Wisdom Almanac where even just looking at the names of Australian test cricketers, you've got to get up to the 80s or 90s before you even get a couple of Eastern European names in there. Sure. You know, let alone anyone like Usman Khawaja or Indigenous player, you know, Jason Gillespie being the first Indigenous man to play test cricket for Australia and that was the late 90s by the time he came into the team. Yeah, one thing that has been a lesson for me in music is when you see yourself up on stage, there's nothing unusual about it. It just is part of the realm of possibilities to see yourself playing that role because that person sort of looks like you. And I've always had the mentality that, hey, you know, there's no rules why any particular person can't succeed and go on and do the things that they want to do. And in music, I remember years ago talking to kids, whether they be from disadvantaged backgrounds or remote communities or parts of different parts of Sydney, and they would be talking about their heroes, Snoop Dogg and American rappers. And I remember this was particularly at a period where we were really kind of starting to own our own space and actually build a little bit of an industry in Australian music for hip-hop and having these conversations with these kids and going, hey, hang on a sec, but what about the local heroes that you got? You can actually have a closer connection to this becoming a possible career choice for you. And it came back down to the fact that these kids were not seeing themselves on stage. They were not seeing artists that were black. They weren't seeing artists that had brown skin. It was a lot of white skin that they were seeing. So they didn't even think of themselves as having a chance to play on stage. And I think in cricket, 
we can't understate the importance of actually seeing yourself out in the middle and going, okay, this is a thing where I'm connected to another person in my community. I can see myself doing that. And kids grow up with that being unspoken. I mean, in rugby league, you know, Polynesian kids can see themselves running out there on the field. Aboriginal kids can see themselves out there on the field and I, I don't think cricketers had any kind of grasp on that. It's almost never had that and Kawaja wrote about exactly that saying that it didn't occur to him to support Australia when he was a kid because none of them looked anything like him or his friends and yeah. so why would you in a way? Why would, you, why would it even cross your mind? Which is such a strange concept for all of us mm. or all the, I, I guess, people that make up the majority of crickets enthusiasts and participants mm. is that you don't really think about that because yep. it's not the experience that you've lived and i think there's a little bit of a gap where you try and start to appreciate why someone could say oh why wouldn't i follow australia <laughs> it's something that you very proactively tried to change with elephant tracks where the roster of artists you guys have signed up over the years um, a lot of artists whose backgrounds are asian or, or indigenous australian or african it's a conscious effort to say there's a whole range of music out there and we want to be able to give opportunities to, to people to show us what they've got yeah, well, I think I'd identified that we were part of the gatekeeping problem yep. and that you have to really proactively change your processes to get access to people that you otherwise wouldn't. So I don't really know how much conscious work I did in that rather than just being a little bit more hardline about not signing artists who were similar to artists that we'd previously signed. An Elephant Track started off, the origin of it is very multicultural, so it never felt like we were completely changing what we were doing, but it, yeah, it became something where we were consciously not signing artists that were white males <laughs> with a view to trying to go well we're part of this overall picture and there's so much more to it than what the rest of the industry is looking at i look at it in footy right there's a real investment in trying to make that cultural jump to not only be working with people that perhaps wouldn't have had a pathway to that professional part of the sport or is that you know you're able to actually create a safe environment for them when they do actually get to the club and they can be part of something that can last for 10 years rather than just be a few years and then you know you burn out because there's too many cultural differences and there's no effort and it's not just about giving them pads and a bat it's actually about trying to come together as a community and give and take so i think that you can actually go well that one player is going to become a stepping stone for other players to come through and who, where are you going to be in 20 years providing a pathway to different parts of the community to participate and then then it becomes you know what i feel like with where music's going in australia where you have a lot more artists coming from different parts of the community it starts becoming more reflective of the overall mentality of the country not just like a kind of channel nine all the participants on um i'm a celebrity get me out of here all white or like mm. you know the bachelor or whatever they're all the same kind of yep. people we do that so effortlessly I did an interview with Darcy Short. He was saying what he would love to see in the future is to have it be a non-event when Indigenous players are playing for Australia. He said, you know, it would still be important, but it wouldn't be like, oh, you're the third Indigenous player, you know, mm. you're the fifth. It would just be part of the normal run of things that that's how it is, that there are Aboriginal players in the Australian cricket team because there have been so few uh, in, in representative cricket over the years. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the idea of having a, an Indigenous round in the BBL or... It's a thought that I guess no 
one would have even put too much time into because it's not cricket's so far behind in that kind of respect. But yeah, and then Dan Christian's been one who's pushed that, but he's found it difficult to get much traction because um, precisely that reason. It it almost just highlights the fact that there are so few players from that background as opposed to in the, the NRL or the AFL when there are so many Indigenous players in those leagues that it's a real celebration and everybody can feel part of it. And footy did a great job with that when you consider that through the 80s, especially in the 90s, there was some pretty intense racism. On another podcast, we're interviewing Martin Flanagan about his experience watching football at the MCG in the 80s, specifically watching the Cracker Brothers and, and what they were subjected to and how far we've gone from there to where we are now, notwithstanding um, the Adam Goods debacle that prematurely ended his career. But as a football community, I think we now, uh, I think we have a, a far more mature relationship with our Indigenous players. I, mean, yeah. Yeah, I hope that cricket has a similar career arc, if you like, with, with the way that we embrace Aboriginal players going forward. It feels like we're further down the path as far as the maturity of the nation and that it's not a novelty, but it doesn't mean that the story ends there. It just means that there's a an ability for that conversation going forward to just take on a few more perspectives and yeah. be expressed in a different way. And, you know, whether it be allowing for a, an articulate player like Adam Goods to come out and talk on social issues and talk about the general experience beyond just kicking goals and, and winning Brownlows, it, it's that. And it's also just that expression of excellence that I'm here, I'm so great, and therefore, by virtue of being so great, sending a, a message to all those people in Australia about the potential and the ingenuity, the the talent, the the depth of of someone like, Buddy Franklin, who's not an outspoken player, but can allow Australians to get an insight into the genius of that athleticism. And that genius of athleticism is an amazing thing to me because it's like instrumental music that doesn't need words. It's just by virtue of the compositions and the artistry and the, the arrangements and the players and how great they are. You can actually get a whole expression of that brilliance. It doesn't need words. And I think, you know, that these are parallels that I find with sport and music all the time. It's a thing I think about a lot as well, that art and sport to me are basically the same thing. There's a desire as a human being to express yourself in some fashion. And if you're a ballerina, you're an athlete. If you're an athlete, you're creating patterns, you're creating shapes, you're honing your body to make it as the best possible instrument it can be to express yourself in the medium that you've chosen and if that medium is hitting a ball over long on then you know that's as valid as as a medium that's painting i think they're the same thing and there's an urge for stories and narrative and you find stories in sport that's why people get fascinated with sport they follow those stories of teams and players and and all of it's coming from the same place so this sort of idea that you're either into art or you're into sport is one that's fundamentally fallacious to me there's a lot of crossover i watch athletes at their peak where they are just there's a symmetry and there's a everything is just working perfectly it's just humming this engine is just humming that's poetry to me you know there's this poetry about the way that a you can have a stoppage and a ball can be handballed to another player to another player and this passage of play that just feels like it's actually it defies being limited to just some bunch of accidents on the field there's this poetry about it is just smooth and i find so many parallels between that and those really amazing moments as a musician where for whatever has caused the chemistry between the music and the words and the singing and the performance and the way that those elements come together to create a beautiful song 
I mean, these things are the same to me. There's a problem solving with music. You know, music sometimes, you know, reduced down to inspiration. And actually, no, what, what happens with music is you just have a set of problems and you've just got to solve them. And sometimes you can solve them and the end outcome is just a song that, that is buried, doesn't go anywhere. Other times, and I, I'm, I've done this enough now to know that it's not always in the power of the, the person who's doing it. For whatever reason, you've, you've, th- those elements come together and it's a great song. It's a song that resonates and it means something to you and i mean you see that on the sporting field all the time just yeah there's a difference between grinding out a win and just something spectacular happening and those things are the things that you buy into it for but and i sometimes think about that watching great athletes play it's just like oh wow you know i I was alive at the time when they were at the top of their (laughs) trade like how lucky because that's the story that you tell your kids because yeah you can watch it on tv but that's a privilege and um when you really love a sport you appreciate those finer details. It just makes the romance all the more potent. Tim, one of the stories you did want to tell was about Philip Hughes, the cricketer who was killed playing in 2014. You wrote a tribute song, I guess, for him that came out a year after his death. It was called Nambucca Boy. It was on the album that you put out around about that time as well. Tell us a bit about how did it come about that you decided that you wanted to write this piece? I'm pretty wary about the crossover between sport and music and trying to force sport into music. It's like when you go to a sporting event, sometimes mentally you're there to really take in that contest. You're not wanting to see a band play at halftime. They can be really incongruent. And I say that being a passionate musician and a big sports lover. That can be a, a strange meeting place. And I know that there's a great catalogue of music that has truly captured sport. And you think of names like Paul Kelly, of course. He's got his famous songs. But yeah, I'm really wary about it. I would not have sat down and chosen to write a song like this. It's not a thing where I thought, oh, that's, a, that's right for the picking. I think it was just one of those times where I so often get therapy out of my processes with music and you do tend to make sense of them piece by piece as you're trying to put them into words and I have a bit of a privilege because there's sometimes a compelling need to create music and I'm able to even take the time to put those into words you know a lot of the time it just becomes pub banter or chatting through this stuff or maybe it's bigger for people and they see therapists or not but for me it I was driving past the um, SCG the night they had lit the ground and a bunch of the ex-players came together and it was the same week that he'd been hit by the bouncer and they had, the, the family had come together and, and he had passed away and all these cricketers came together and I only knew that because a mate of mine who works at the Swan said that this was happening, that they're all going to come together and just mourn Philip Hughes and I drove past from a gig that night and I saw the lights on and it just profoundly impacted me. I just thought about it and 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 the strangeness of phil hughes's death which had such an impact on so many people in australia and 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 around the world he impacted me the same i felt like it was too quick the whole thing just happened too quickly and it was hard to compute and i drove home i was on my way home and i thought well i'm just going to go to the studio and just try and put something into words and i'd hadn't thought about it as a song i just thought it was a therapy i just wanted to try and put this into words because you know why am i driving along on a city evening feeling these conflicting emotions and i just went back and did a more like a spoken word just free-flowing whatever came out and it wasn't till about 
six months or a year later that I thought, I wonder about putting that to music. And even when I did that, I didn't think about putting it on an album and it never ended up on an album. It just ended up as a kind of a, a song that went with the album. And, and even right on the point where we put the record out, I remember the night before the record came out, because it came out as a bonus song, I thought, oh, I don't even know if I feel comfortable about that. Have I done the wrong thing? I had a real crisis of like of a panic moment thinking that this was a song that felt like my... It was the summation of my lifetime of following cricket and the grief of trying to come to terms with the death of a person I'd never met. And then I thought, why am I putting it on a record? This shouldn't be in a commercial space. I didn't know what to do about it. I felt like I was I had just made this massive misstep that maybe didn't do justice to the, the family and no one commented on it. So no one sort of said, oh, why did you do this? I suppose it was more about me trying to come to terms with my own version of events and my own way of processing Phil Hughes' passing. And looking back, I don't think I did the wrong thing. I just think that because that was such a complicated event for a lot of cricket lovers and people in general, that that was my form of anxiety and trying to understand what was the right thing to do with it. There seemed to be a lot of people who responded to it in a really positive way, saying that it had helped them process their feelings about it as well. Yeah, yeah. Like in the song, it talks about blokes crying at traffic lights in their cars as the news came through. And I see that when I've performed it live, you know, people brought to tears and there's a, a way of people who wouldn't otherwise ordinarily be in touch with their feelings just breaking a little bit because there's just a gap there where you generally you're not exposed i guess that's the word i'm looking for is you're not exposed too often and you generally have your ways of dealing with life that protect yourself and especially blokes you know blokes who are told not to be too in touch with their emotions this one was one of those moments that exposed a lot of people and caught them by surprise and people had to deal with the preciousness of life at a time where they were not expecting to think about it and so yeah you know that was something that i i see quite a bit i see even like young kids at gigs just becoming emotional about that song because this is a moment where they're okay to it's almost they're allowed to do it especially maybe they've had a couple of beers people are like oh this is an okay time for me to deal with you know the frailty of life sometimes i think we should have a listen to it so that people can know what it is that we're talking about and then talk a little bit more Nambucker boy. And all of those thousand thoughts that could be in the back of your mind. Looking out the dressing room door, am I good enough to don these whites? It's the SCJ, but the nerves are bilingual. Often settled by a single, just hit the damn ball. Yet the game is that simple. Jitter for fear of a cheap dismissal. On the walls hung the accolades The names that have been engraved The Bradmans, the Benos, the giants of the game They rose up like a fig tree out of Saturdays The kid was seeing them like basketballs The summer that he'd be recalled Feet moving and a better balance on a shorter ball Scoring free, barely getting caught at all He was brought up Nambucker Riverway Town of Maxfield Young kid begins to play The way he wields the willow outside off No matter what was thrown at him Well it'll bounce right off Runs came in fifties and tons Ever since he was young Save your legs, fill it's four more runs Baggy cap was not a match for the Australian sun Next to nose has got burnt Put the emblem on the front 
and a write up in a local paper. But this time, not up in the back of the sports pages. A local lad had cracked the shield side. A couple years after the ashes of 05, raised his bat that much that he got his baggy green. Flying across the Indian Ocean with the Australian team. Number one ranked opposition. Dale staying at the peak of his powers. They're booing against him in a nerve wracking hour. And he failed at first caught by the keeper, but it was the second innings of the match that he featured. Second test of the series, a century in both innings. The youngest to do it at 20, no longer a secret. And it had all gone to plan, but his destiny was never that simple. Cause simple is rare. A temporary member in and out of the test. But soon enough, a permanent threat. But there, they're in the middle that November night. Let the groundsmen turn on the lights. Radio reports saying that the batsman died. So let the groundsmen turn on the lights and all of these thousand thoughts that would be in the back of their minds. They're walking out the dressing room door. We solemnly are side by side. So let the groundsmen turn on the lights. The grown men crying at traffic lights. And everywhere there were bats outside. So let the grounds return the lights. Yeah, it was just a multi-layered, deep sadness that I didn't know Philip Hughes, but I just grieved over this bloke for so long. I feel as though when when your song came out a year later, Tim, like that was the catalyst for a whole bunch of us to go through that process once more. Because it was it was the year anniversary, wasn't it? Memory serves me correctly yeah. when the, when the song was released. And Jeff, I remember you and I listening to it once, and it, yeah. I think it's because we've all played cricket and we all know how easy it is to be hit by a cricket ball. That's one part of it. Mm. The other part of it is this the human being in question who seems such a happy person, cut down at the prime of his life at age 25. It's just criminal to think that someone that young could suffer that affliction. Um, there was the kind of, you shouldn't talk of it this way, but the cricket element, we didn't get to see the full expression of what he could be. Mm. Um, we all knew what he was going to be or we all assumed what he would go to be and be a champion of the game. It, it, it had so many different elements to it. And I think you put it best before, we were just so shocked by it. It was uh, such profound sadness that which prevails to this day. It's true that the narrative of a professional cricketer's life generally has a few hiccups and, and, and so many of them mirror the road bumps that have affected players of a previous generation. And you see them, they come out and Phil Hughes was one of those players that immediately had an impact mm. and then was found out a little bit. That's not uncommon. This is part of the growth and how, how you mature as a cricketer and quite often we will watch and see whether that player is able to overcome the, that adversity and be able to go on with it. And, you know, he seemed like one of those players that was destined to overcome yeah. and have a great career. So that narrative that we are so accustomed to, these players that have had the fortune of having time 
to overcome those adversities and become great cricketers and become better cricketers as a result of them. That was what was supposed to happen. And I think having that disrupted, I think that was one of the things that caught so many people by surprise because we're so used to those news stories. And I've often wondered in the aftermath, and I think you and I have both now written about this, Jeff, that the effect of the players who did know him intimately, indeed those who shared the field with him, and what an impact that would have on, on someone's life. Like I can't even conceive if a dear friend of mine died in front of my eyes. Like They all went through this with a teammate in their place of work. I mean, it's yeah. also an industrial accident. I pondered recently whether we perhaps didn't give them as much space as they required. They were back out on the field two weeks later and, and yeah. you know, playing in a World Cup three months later. And there must be still to this day parts of that which go unprocessed for these guys that have to make a quid doing essentially what, the, what their friend did when he died. Yeah, I mean, remember the kind of outcry about bounces and regulating the game a bit more and gradually those things become they don't attract the clicks because when we encounter a problem in general society you're looking for a quick fix but even at the time most cricketers are on one side hoping that you never see or hear of another event like this but at the other realizing that how do you change the game when Mm. that is part of it i mean like you said it before adam that was a great point we've all been hit by a ball i remember one time on a wet synthetic wicket growing up in as a teenager, having a helmet but not the face guard and getting hit by a bouncer. And it was just that it skidded off this um, synthetic surface and it knocked out a couple of teeth in my... And I still got, like, scars on my tongue from from being hit by balls and whatnot. But we... I guess like a lot of people trying to process the fact this is just part of the game and a lot of players have been hit by cricket balls in the same way since. The other part of it that stood out to me was the nature of public grief and how erratic how strange it can be that you know the the things that do grab the public attention and then you'll have other people pushing back and saying why are you all mourning for this person when other people have died on the same day or Mm. you hear it with disasters or terrorist attacks or so on some get more attention than others and the criticisms are legitimate there often is a racial component or a cultural disconnect or whatever it might be but there's also the fact that humans can't grieve for everybody you don't Mm. have the emotional capacity to have a response to everything you you sort of have to be able to not respond to some things and i guess the reasons why we do or don't respond to various things are definitely open for criticism but the fact is that you can't possibly process all of that at once and it's almost a a lottery sometimes as to which things will get through and why an event like this broke through to so many people so powerfully I mean, it's totally disproportionate, right? And it is unfair. And why we uh, prescribe importance to some people's lives and not others. I mean, this is an opportunity to really kind of self-reflect about why we do that in general. And yeah, you're right. Those people are right to say that this is a disproportionate response to something. Why is there an imbalance there? That's a very fair observation and criticism of that general response. But that doesn't take away from the fact that sometimes, you know, you can't, be guilty for feeling the way things impact you because that is the nature of life. What I think is another response rather than feeling guilty about that is actually, yeah, reflecting on, yeah, why is it? Why is it that you're not impacted by somebody else dying in a very tragic circumstances? But I feel like those are opportunities just to learn about life <laughs> and, and <laughs> in, in a sad way. You know? It's something that you wrestled with at the time, whether you should put it out. I remember you contacted me at the time and we didn't know each other particularly well but you were basically saying well I've written this thing and, and I don't know if I should have yeah. and I don't know what I should do with it or should I do nothing with it or should I do something with it and you were searching out in various directions trying to get some feedback to tell you what to do in this situation yeah. when ultimately it was really just an expression of what you felt at the time which is legitimate if that's what you were feeling. 
And I think yeah. most people are, who heard it, it, it's such a tender piece of music as well. Like you, in theory, you could get frustrated by the commercial element that you said before. Someone could make that criticism until mm. they hear the song and know what you were attempting to do. I think that might have a, a link to why you didn't receive any backlash at the time. Yeah, I, I, and for my involvement in music and, and watching other musicians and the way that they contribute to our general understanding of life, this is our job. You know, we've we got to sometimes try and find words or, or try and find a, a mood that can make sense of something that perhaps is it defies a logical understanding there's no logical understanding to be found but there is an understanding there is something there is a way of translating why this is feels the way it does and and us as musicians we that's our stock and trade is you're trying to not even make sense but just expand on what's going on and we're all imperfect i may come from a completely amateur cricket background but the honest way that i engage with that event is the only thing that i can offer you know i can't really offer anything Mm. beyond that tim it's been wonderful talking to you at length across such a range of subjects if you're listening in jump online and look up music from earth boy or look up elephant tracks there's a whole range of artists on that roster for you to get involved with and thanks for having a chat to us today on the final word Thanks very much. It was good fun. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, The Final Word. Thanks again to Earthboy. Uh, great to listen back to that chat. Uh, hopefully, if you listened to it the first time and re-listened to it, you got something out of it again. And if it was your first time and you've joined the podcast uh, between last January and now, which I suppose a lot of people would be in that boat given we got a lot of new people finding us uh, during the World Cup last year, uh, that that goes some way to explaining our theme music, which we're proud to have at the start and the end of the show. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I could tell you. Do, 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 do. That's, that's how it goes and that's what we do. And I guess that's what we'll keep doing on The Final Word as long as you'd like us to do it. Indeed. And in order to do so, we need to... Uh, well, we're supported by a lot of people behind the scenes. Uh, uh, Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards, who run the Bad Producer Productions Network, their wonderful array of shows in sports, comedy, the arts, uh, are all at badproducerproductions.com, which, of course, is always in our show notes. Dave Collins, who edits us a couple of times a week now. It can be quite a big job given uh, how many bits and pieces we're dropping into the shows and how many false starts and misspeaks that we edit out along the way but it's all worth it I hope uh, and I know that uh, Dave uh, labours over our uh, our show each week and does a fabulous job so thanks to him and, and most of all uh, thanks to everyone who's been part of our final word community uh, not least those who are there through patrons so patron.com forward slash the final word and we're nearing that 499 or 501 and hopefully we're there by the time that we talk again next week uh, Hopefully you have a lovely weekend. You've enjoyed this show and we'll talk to you on Tuesday. See ya. I had to go about it.